the Gospel of John, chapter 7, which is on page 1057, if you're using a pew Bible and unfamiliar with uh, John's Gospel. John, chapter 7, verses 14 to 24 is our text today, and we'll read that in a moment. The reality is that we are far less logical and rational than we would like to think that we are. We fancy ourselves reasonable. The way we often perceive ourselves is that we objectively take in information in an unbiased way. We then rationally process that information and reasonably, and then we live our lives based upon what we have logically and rationally assessed based on the information given us. And, and we sort of assume that the things we do make sense, that, that of course I'm doing what I'm doing because it makes sense. I mean, it has to have made sense. Um, but this kind of enlightenment view of, of the human mind where, 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 you know, where the unaided reason and the objective detached observer has fallen on a bit of hard times in the last, especially 50, 60 years, as different disciplines have come up and challenged it in, in different ways. Uh, the big bully postmodernism has walked down the beach and kicked over the Enlightenment sandcastle. And, uh, you know, through postmodernism, we've had this emphasis on the fact that our cultural context shapes so many of the ways we think without even realizing it. Even the language that we use and the very grammar that we use sort of preloads our thinking before we even start thinking and, and shapes how we think about things. Uh, the, the field of psychology has explored the way our experiences in life shape the way that we perceive and, and, and assess our experiences today and the things that are happening to us. Uh, in, in the whole sort of field of, of brain science and neurochemistry, there, there's an exploration of how what's happening chemically in our brains affects our thinking and our minds. And, and in some areas of that field, it's, it's almost as if the human being has been reduced to, to the chemistry in the head and the mind and the soul have evaporated. Um, I have a, a sister-in-law who has a Ph.D. in social psychology. If you've never heard of social psychology, well, neither had I until I heard that she was getting a degree in this. But it's actually an interesting field. It, it sort of studies the way that social relationships affect the way that we think and perceive things. Uh, so uh, uh, I was trying to have her, like, tell me what this is about. And, and you know, it, it's really this whole field that kind of studies how we're much less rational than we think we are and how much things affect us without us even realizing it. She was talking about, for instance, this one kind of social psychological phenomenon that's uh, known as the primacy effect, where basically something that happens first to us often shapes how we perceive later things, kind of like first impressions, if you want to grossly oversimplify it. So there's this experiment that was done, a famous kind of social psych experiment in the 60s to prove the primacy effect. She was trying to describe this to me, so hopefully I get this right. But uh, basically what they did is they got these actors who took this fake quiz. This is all a big setup. And, and the actors took this quiz, and they took the quiz out loud in front of an audience, and the audience were the test subjects. That's who they're doing the experiment on. But they, they just thought they were there watching these people take a quiz, but it was actually actors. And it was a 30-question quiz taken out loud in front of everybody, and all of the actors got exactly 15 out of 30 questions correct. So they all got the same score. Some of the actors 
got those 15 out of 30 more right at the beginning of the quiz. Other actors got sort of the answers right scattered throughout the quiz or near the end of the quiz. And then what they would do is after each actor would take the quiz, the, the audience, the test subjects, would then be asked, okay, was that person who just took the quiz, were they, were they smart or not? Would you assess them as smart or not? And, and what would happen is, is that if somebody got the answers right, more answers of the 15 out of 30 right at the beginning of the quiz, there was a much greater tendency for people to say that was a smart person. Whereas if somebody sort of got the answers right, kind of scattered throughout the quiz, there would be a much greater tendency for people to say, well, that's not as smart of a person, even though they all got 15 out of 30 right. You know, the logical thing to do would be to sit down, and as people are answering, you'd keep track. That's the logical thing, but we don't always operate logically. And and so, you know, then here's these social psych people like, what's going on? Why do they do this? And so the primacy effect is that you you see people answering a few questions right in the beginning, and so you categorize them mentally as smart or, 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 you know, educated or whatever, and and you put this grid in in social psych terms, it's called a schema. So, So you start looking at this person through a schema as intelligent. And no matter what happens after that, you've already set the way you think about them. And if someone else comes along and they didn't get the first ones right, then you say, well, that's maybe not as smart of a person, even though they all got the same score. And, you know, we're not as rational and reasonable as we often lead ourselves to believe. Well, when we look to the the Scriptures, you know, what what is the Bible's kind of take on the mind and on our reason? And, And I think there's a lot of things we could say, but at least two things that need to be said. One is that on the one hand, the Bible teaches that we are rational beings. We have a reason. We have a mind. We are made in the image of God. We, we, we really do use our brains. The, the Bible speaks to our minds with data and arguments and information. Um, we, we, you know, we're not just sort of um, biochemical machines. There, there is a soul to us. So we have to affirm that. But the Bible also sort of makes the point that we're not quite as rational as we think we are. And specifically where, where the Bible addresses this is in, is in the fact that our reason is in many ways dominated by our spiritual condition. So it's not just our experiences and that's just maybe how neurotransmitters are working, but we have a spirit, we have a soul. And the, and the condition of that soul, its, it's orientation toward God or away from God affects and influences how we perceive and judge and look at things, especially things of spiritual nature, how how we're able to assess the things of God. Sin is real, and sin is not just an act like, whoops, I committed a sin. Sin is a condition. It's it's a nature. It's a whole life orientation away from God and toward my own will and toward my own glory, and it affects everything. So, yes, you really are driving the car of reason. You're really driving it. The problem is you're driving under the influence, and, and you're all over the road, and so am I. It, we're dangerously erratic, and often sin leads us into the ditch or crashing the car into a pole. And so th- this is the challenge of the human being made in the image of God, but under the dominion of sin, and therefore, every aspect of our being, including the way we think, gets affected by this. So John chapter 7. It's a big wind-up. John chapter 7. I think it's a case study in this dynamic, the way our spiritual condition 
affects our ability to see things rightly, judge things rightly, think about things rightly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 14 to 24, then we'll talk about it. But as I'm reading it, just listen for this thread. Listen for this thread of perception, judging, assessing, and notice how it's an unwillingness to do the will of God and an unwillingness to love the glory of God that affects the perceptions of the people to whom Jesus speaks. All right, John seven fourteen. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. So here we have Jesus, verse 14, start at the top there. He's at the feast. In this case, the feast uh, in view is the Feast of Tabernacles, which would be the fall harvest feast of the Jews. Uh, would fall somewhere in late September, early October, depending on the lunar calendar that year. And uh, it, it was uh, apparently the, one of the more popular, if not the most popular, of the Jewish festivals. Uh, it's when all the grapes were harvested and the figs and all the fruit. You know, it's a big fruit harvest at the end of the year. It's a big happy time where people are celebrating. And this was the festival of, if any of you have had Jewish friends, or who, when they make tabernacles, they make booths out of uh, branches in the backyard and, and sleep in, in that part of that tabernacles festival. Just a big happy time. And Jesus, if you'll remember from two Sundays ago, stretch back in your minds, remember chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, Jesus' brothers were pushing him to go to the feast. Go to the feast. Do miracles. Get a crowd. And Jesus says, no, it's not my time. Jesus operated based on the Father's timetable, based on the Father's schedule. And so the brothers went off to the feast. But at the, at the right time, Jesus also went to the feast, but he went incognito. And now in verse 14, he actually comes out publicly in the feast, but not the way the brothers had suggested, not doing big wow miracles to make everybody follow him, but, but he, he starts uh, teaching. He goes into the temple like a rabbi. He sits down and he starts to teach. And look at the reaction, verse 15. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied. They're amazed at his teaching. He hasn't studied. He's got this learning. Now, at first blush, when I first read verse 15, I kind of took it positively. At like, like the Jews were like, wow, this is so cool. This guy, is, he's really good at teaching the Bible, and he hasn't even you know, studied under a rabbi. He hasn't gone to seminary, if you want to put it in modern terms. Wow, he's like a prodigy. 
He's like a Bobby Fisher. He just knows how to play chess. He's just a little kid. He, you know, he's like a walk-on to an NFL football team who's suddenly a great athlete. Where'd this guy come from? Wow, he's teaching the Bible and he never studies. Isn't this awesome? That's not the tone of this passage. They're not excited. They're, they're troubled. This, this whole passage has a very negative, critical tone to it. I think what they're saying is, you, you know, where's this guy get off teaching us? He hasn't studied. He's got this learning. Where did it come from? What's he doing in the temple courts? <laughs> Who does he think he is? That, that word there in verse 15, the Jews were amazed. It's a Greek word, and it can have sort of a range of meaning. But it's interesting, when John uses that word for amazed, the, the different times he uses it in his gospel, he tends to use it, not an amazement in the sense of like, wow, excitement, but John tends to use it in the sense of amazement like offended, shocked, and a little bit repulsed. Like, what? You know, offended. I, oh, that's, that's not good. So there's a negative quality. It's the word, for instance, that's used in John chapter 3 when Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, what? <laughs> I'm supposed to go back in my mother's womb? How can that happen? And then Jesus says, hey, don't be amazed. That's the same word. Don't be shocked that I said this. It happens again in John chapter 4 where uh, Jesus is witnessing to the woman at the well in Samaria. Remember when we studied that, that passage? And he's talking to the woman at the well in Samaria and the disciples come back from town and they find Jesus alone at the well talking to a woman and it says the disciples were amazed. But they didn't say anything. It doesn't mean the disciples were going, wow, he's witnessing. Isn't that awesome? You know, It means that they were like, I can't believe he's talking to a woman alone. This is not appropriate. This is a little bit scandalous. There's, there's shock. It's, so as this word keeps cropping up in John, it's always with a sense of, of shock and a little bit of uh, offense even. And I think that's what's happening here. How did this man get such learning? He, he hasn't studied. You know, to be a rabbi was a very sort of institutionalized track in those days. You studied underneath somebody. A rabbi would go to, an, a person would go and study under a rabbi. And so uh, the Apostle Paul studied under one of the famous rabbis in his day, Gamaliel. And, and Paul could point to that and say, that was my rabbi. And so there's very much kind of a pedigree system where you studied under a rabbi and that rabbi trained you. And then you could claim kind of a, a, uh, an academic lineage from certain rabbis. And, and what are the, the, the skill of being a rabbi was being able to cite previous rabbis in the interpretation of Scripture. So if you went to the temple looking for teaching, trying to understand something about the Bible, trying to get a fine interpretation on some point of, Christ, uh, of living as a, as a Jewish person, you go to the rabbi and you say, well, what about this? And the rabbi would give you an answer. He'd say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. But interestingly, Rabbi so-and-so said that. And, and they would cite the rabbis. And so part of being a, a recognized teacher of the law is that you had studied under other teachers of the law. You had mastered this body of teaching and interpretation called the oral tradition that helped you interpret the Bible that they had at that time. And then there's Jesus, <laughs> who didn't study under anyone, who, who didn't, he just shows up, and, and he's not citing anybody. He just says things like, he doesn't say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says. Jesus shows up and says in the old King James, verily, verily, I say unto thee, truly, I tell you, like, he just says things, and he's doing that again. Here he is in the temple 
teaching without credentials, without having studied and gone through the appropriate channels. And so they're asking him, where, where did you get your teaching? And I love Jesus' answer in verse 16. He says, my teaching's not my own. Look, I'm not making this up, guys. I got this from somewhere else. I have a rabbi. I have a rabbi. My teaching comes from him who sent me. So, no, I studied under a rabbi. My rabbi is God. How you like that? You don't say that. <laughs> no one says that God is the rabbi, that the Father is your rabbi. Hey, I studied. I didn't make this stuff up. I'm just telling you what my rabbi told me, God. And so it's offensive. I mean, who talks like that? Who talks like that? You know, people who are struggling with delusions talk like that. Evil people might talk like that. Demon-possessed people. And then Jesus talks like that. He says things like that all the time. He's always saying, I came from above. I do my Father's will. I'm not going to Jerusalem. It's not my time yet. I'll go when the Father tells me to go. He's always indicating that the Father is teaching him and he's following. He's always indicating a unique relationship to God that nobody on earth would ever claim unless they were either delusional or if you believe in such things, which I do, demon-possessed. And so, unless you're that case, why, why would you say the things Jesus says? He was always upsetting the crowds by making these claims of a unique relationship to God. We've seen that again in John, and, we've seen it, and we'll see it again and again as we continue to move through the Gospel of John. But then Jesus helps them. All right, and so now here we go. We're getting back to this, this central idea that I started the sermon with. Look at verse 17. He wants to help them figure out whether or not his teaching really has come from God. I mean, how do you know? Someone says my teaching comes from God. Like, well, how do I know that? How do I know you're not just making stuff up and you're not delusional or demon-possessed? And so Jesus says in verse 17, here's how you know. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak in my own. So if you want to know if Jesus really is the Son of God and if he really is sent by God, then the precondition for knowing that is choosing to do God's will. Right? So if you choose to do God's will, you'll be able to figure it out. Conversely, if you don't choose to do God's will, you're not going to be able to figure it out, which is, I think, a kind of implicit jab at the crowds. I think the reason you can't figure this out is you're not the kind of people who really want to do God's will. If you did want to do God's will, you'd get it. Or to put it another way, our spiritual orientation dominates our reason and our ability to make right judgments about spiritual things. And if my spiritual orientation is toward God's will, then Jesus is saying, you're going to be able to know whether or not what I'm saying is true. And if your spiritual orientation is toward your own will, you'll never be able to figure it out. So, so you know, the person who has doubts, a person who's skeptical, a uh, person who's agnostic or whatever, they say, well, prove it. I will be willing to do God's will if you can prove it first, that there is a God. Prove it, then I'll do it. And Jesus says, actually, it's the other way around. You must first be willing to surrender your will to God's will, and then you'll get the proof. No, that's not how it works. That's not the empirical method. 
Sorry, Jesus, like, I didn't study the empirical method. I didn't study under the rabbis. I'm not going by your credentials. It's part of his authority. And he says, no, first you must be willing to do God's will. And if you're not willing to do God's will, if your spiritual orientation isn't toward his will instead of your own will, then you're not going to be able to rightly assess what I'm saying. So here we find ourselves in a game of chicken with God Almighty. (laughs) Not a good place to be. You know, is my will really surrendered to the will of God? Even as Christians, is my will surrendered? I mean, think about that. I will do God's will. If there is a God, God, I will do your will. You know, even as Christians, are we truly submitted to the will of God? Have I given up my will? Am I able to say like Jesus, Lord, not what I will, but thy will be done? Jesus was the ultimate example of a man completely surrendered to the will of God. Everything, everything was for the Father. Totally doing the Father's will at all times, even when it didn't make sense, even when it brought him to the cross. Always doing the will of the Father. And so God calls us to surrender ourselves to his will in order to be able to assess things rightly and judge spiritual things rightly. So everything, you know. Surrendered to him. There was a, a famous evangelist in the um, 19th century, Dwight Moody. Moody uh, went all over the country, all over the world, preaching, and God blessed his ministry with power. People were saved, came to Christ under Dwight L. Moody's ministry. And just a, a man, you know, to sometimes people say someone's anointed, you know, someone anointed by God for a great ministry. And, and one of the questions would be how does D.L. Moody get his power? How, how does he have such effectiveness and fruitfulness? And, and one of the, the themes you, you come up against in his biographies, of both a little bit from Moody and from others, is that they would describe Moody as a man who was completely surrendered to the will of God. You know, and obviously no human being can be completely surrendered. But this idea of he was ready, he was God's man. And it's, it's said that once D.L. Moody said to a man, if I believe God was telling me to jump out that window, I would jump out the window. Whew, I don't know if I'm that committed. <laughs> you know, I, I think I would have a lot of doubts. But, you know, it's a bit of hyperbole. But you get the point. Whatever God says. So we look at our lives and we say, am I really committed to God's will? Is it, Lord, your will be done with my career? Lord, thy will be done with my relationships, my marriage, my singleness? Lord, Thy will be done with children. Lord, may your will be done with my sexuality. May your will be done with my money. May your will be done with, you know, my whole life. Is my life surrendered to the Lord? And it's that that serves as a kind of precondition. The heart that is surrendered to the will of God is able to assess whether or not Jesus really is the one sent from God. Well, verse 18, Jesus gives us a little help. This is nice. That's a a tall order, verse 17. So he kind of helps us out a little bit, verse 18. Here's a criteria for assessing him. He's going to give us kind of the answers to the test. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. That that word is for honor is glory. I kind of like glory as a better translation. He does it to gain glory for himself. But he who works for the glory, the honor of the one who sent him, is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. So there's two kinds of people. There's people who live for their own glory 
Or there's people who live for the glory of the one who sent Jesus, God. And, and so who, whose fame are you living for? Whose reputation? Who, who are you trying to make great? Who are you trying to point toward with your life? Yourself or, or God? And it's kind of the two choices, my own glory or his glory, my own will or his will. There's these contrasts here. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate man after God's own heart. Jesus is the one who lived for God's glory in everything that he did. You know, he, he was always about pointing people to the Father, pointing his teaching back to the Father. Everything I do is from the Father. He's always pointing us back to the Father's glory. Even his death on the cross was about amplifying the Father's glory. It wasn't about his glory. To die on the cross in Roman times was the ultimate opposite extreme of having glory. It was shame and humiliation. It was the, the epitome of being at rock bottom. You know, you, we talk about someone hitting rock bottom. In the Roman world, being nailed to a cross was rock bottom. There's no shame, no glory. It, it was a, a byword. It was a terrible thing to be nailed to a cross. And to think that Jesus was so about the Father's glory that he would take on the ultimate infamy, the ultimate shame, so that the Father's glory might abound in salvation. That God's glorious desire to save sinners would be launched because Jesus died the shameful death that we deserve for our sins. And so even in his death on the cross, he was giving it all for the Father's glory so that salvation might be magnified. God's glory and God's awesomeness, his fame as being a saving God might be known to the whole world. Jesus' whole life was, Father, not my will, but your will. Not my glory, but your glory. And so he gave himself up. But there's other people who live for their own glory. And again, I think there's another implicit to the crowds. You know, you're living for your own will. You're living for your own glory. It's all about you. It's all about your happiness, you looking good, you being viewed favorably, wanting people to like you, wanting people's opinions of you to be good. They feared each other. They all looked for each other's approval ratings from each other to keep going up. There were inner circles and outer circles. And, you know, just like today, people trying to climb the circles to get men's approval because they, they're concerned about their own glory. But the person who's concerned about God's glory is impervious to the, concern, the views of others. That person says, I'm doing God's glory. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. I'm doing God's will. And that was who Jesus was. And so Jesus is putting himself forward as the one who is all about God's glory and kind of needling them implicitly. Actually, it's not implicit at all, is it? Verse 19, all the implicitness goes away. Verse 19, Jesus takes the gloves off. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You guys, you have God's will. You have the law of Moses. You know exactly what God wants. And yet none of you does it. You don't do God's will. So there, he says it outright. Your heart is covered with this spiritual orientation of wanting your own will and your own glory. And that's why you can't figure out who I am. That's why it's not making sense to you. You're not able to perceive and judge rightly because your spiritual condition 
is dominating your reason and your ability to judge spiritual things. Because look, you guys have the law. You don't even keep it. What, you know, something interesting about that, verse 19, something that strikes me when we get to verse 19, something that jumps out a bit, is, is just simply this. You realize, especially in verse 19, Jesus is talking to religious people. Hmm. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. He's talking to religious people. You know, not, not to the skeptics and, and the agnostics. I mean, yeah, skeptics and agnostics can have kind of a proven attitude, and, and yeah, they need to have their hearts surrendered to God's will, but Jesus isn't talking to them. He's talking to the religious people and the religious leaders. Ooh, yeah, this is uncomfortable. Listen to how he talks to them. These are the people who are concerned about who has the right credentials to teach in the temple. These are the people who go to feasts. These are the people who are concerned about the Sabbath day. These are not the, the wild, worldly people. These are the people who are trying to interpret the Bible rightly and are, are following all the rabbis to make sure that they get their interpretation right and they don't break out of the tradition. And yet somehow, despite all their religion, their hearts are still about their own will and their own glory so that the religion sort of serves as a kind of veneer to hide their corrupt hearts underneath of it. Um, and I think it's important because I, I think sometimes people make a mistake when they're trying to figure their lives out. You, you know, sometimes you, you just get to those points in your life where you, you end up in your life someplace you never thought you'd be, and you realize you need to change. Like, this isn't right. It's not where I ever thought I'd be. I need to change. And so we make a change, and we go from living our life to some kind of religion or spirituality. You know, the person wakes up one day and... Um, you know, hung over and detox or something, and they're like, I can't keep doing this with my life. This has to stop. I'm going to make a change. I'm going to deal with the addiction. You know what? I need, I need God. I need the higher power. And so we go to religion and we, to find that strength, and we, we make a change, and that's good. I mean, th- that's a good move to make. Or maybe we just have brokenness in our life, and a relationship ends, and we're in a lot of pain and we say, I, I need some change, and we shift. Sometimes it's nothing. It's just somebody is doing well in life, and their career is great, and they have money and friends, and they seem great on the outside, but they wake up one day, and they're like, there's got to be something more than this. There has to be something. I'm at the top of the mountain, and it's such a drag. <laughs> there's got to be something more than the top of the mountain. And so they begin searching, and they move in maybe a spiritual or religious direction, and they start becoming involved in a church, or they, they start serving in the community, and those are all good things. But here's the danger. The danger isn't, isn't doing that. The danger is doing that and not having your heart any different, that you're still about your self-will and your self-glory. It's very easy to go from one lifestyle to another and to even helping people around you, which is a good thing, and then to say, well, look at me. Look how far I've come. It's amazing. It's really great, isn't it? You see all the things I'm doing now? <laughs> you know, self-will and self-glory is just insidious. It, it takes even good moves and twists them around. And so here's Jesus speaking to the religious people who you'd think if anybody was doing the will of God and was about the glory of God, it'd be these people. And he's pointing out, you, you have God's word, you have all of these things, and you still are about your own will and your own glory. Not uh, Jesus' most seeker-sensitive moment. 
And the crowds didn't react well either. Look how they react, verse 20. You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Oh, my goodness, Jesus, you really... God, you've told us we don't keep Moses' law. You know who you're talking to? We're the people of Moses. We study his law. So Jesus has to prove it. And and just the last bit of this message here, of this passage, verses 21 to 24, Jesus is going to give them one example of how they have the law of Moses, but they don't keep the law of Moses, proving that they really are about their own will and their own glory, and their religion is just a veneer. So he has given an example to prove that what he's saying in verse 19 is true. So he says in verse 21, here's the example, I did one miracle... And you were all astonished. Okay, now verse 21 is a reference back in John to a miracle Jesus did in John chapter 5. Do you remember this miracle in John chapter 5? You studied it. I think God, when you preached on it, it was, it was about the, the guy who was paralyzed for like 37 years, and Jesus healed him. Um, and, and what was strange is that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, And rather than being excited that the man was healed, the crowds were offended that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. Remember, go go back to John 5. We'll just pick up at the moment of healing. John chapter 5, verse 8. I'm I'm sorry to take you back to John 5, but you really have to remember this story for John 7, 21 to 24 to make sense. So John chapter 5, verse 8. Here's the one healing Jesus is talking about. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. You're doing work. You're carrying things around. That's work. Don't do it. It's a Sabbath. It's rest. The man replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Not, Wow, who's this fellow who healed you? It's, who's this fellow who told you to pick up your mat? Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning. Something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, verse 16, here's the punchline. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Here's another one of these crazy things where Jesus claims to be equal to God, doing what God does. So verse 18, for this very reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So now, John 7, verse 21, I did one miracle and you're all astonished. I healed a guy and you were all that, see that word astonished? That's the same word for amazed. You were all offended that I did this miracle on the Sabbath. That's the backstory. So, verses 22 to 24. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, um, you, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now, if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. You're not thinking straight because of your spiritual orientation. So, all right, so do you see the argument in verses 22 and 23? Let me just lay it out. It's kind of cool. I, I kind of enjoy this, but look at this argument. So the argument is circumcision can happen on the Sabbath, so why shouldn't healing a whole person be done on the Sabbath? So under the law of Moses, when a boy was eight days old, they had to circumcise him. That was the sign that he was now in the covenant, that he was one of God's 
people underneath the, the covenant of Moses, even though the patriarchs had given it to him. It was sort of a Mosaic covenant. And, and so you did that on the Sabbath. And, and if, that, if that eighth day of circumcision happened to fall on the Sabbath, you still did it that day. You didn't wait till the next day. So clearly you could do that kind of work on the Sabbath. Taking it a step further, think of circumcision as a kind of healing. It was a kind of making whole. Um, I'm going to try to say this while being discreet. You know, it's, it's taking a certain piece of anatomy of a boy that in some ways needs to be fixed, needs to be made whole ceremonially. So until circumcision happens, there's something wrong with the boy. He's a Gentile. He's not, he doesn't have the covenant sign. And then he's healed by circumcision. He's fixed. So now he, he's been made whole, a part of his body. And so now Jesus says, okay, if you can do that kind of work of healing on the Sabbath and make a part of him whole so that he's now acceptable within the covenant community, why can't I make a whole person whole on the Sabbath? It's, it's the same thing except just even way better and awesomer. I don't know if awesomer is a word, but wicked awesomer. <laughs> I healed a whole man. Why are you upset? Stop judging my mere appearances. It's like you guys don't understand the law of Moses. You know, what are the two greatest commandments in the law of Moses that summarize the whole law? The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength to love him. So the miracle takes place and nobody's loving God. They should be loving God. They should be like, God is awesome. God healed a guy. Oh, God, you're amazing. I saw you heal a guy. That's awesome. But they're not praising God and rejoicing at seeing the works of God. You know? And what's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's a guy who got healed. And they're not like, we're so happy that you're healed. Oh, I'm so happy for you. I can't imagine 37 years without walking and God's healed you. We're going to throw a whole community party to celebrate God and just be happy for you. It's, who told you to pick up that mat? <laughs> Sabbath police are here. You know? You don't do this? And who did? What? You know, it's like, they're the experts in the law. And they totally missed it. The whole thing. Because... Their interpretation of the Bible, the, their ability to use their minds to understand what was, God was saying was hijacked by self-will and self-glory so that our spiritual condition affects our ability to even understand the things of God. I just find this a really disheartening and scary text. If you're a skeptic, if you're an agnostic, if you're a I'm a scientist, prove it to me kind of person, this passage should trouble you because it's suggesting that maybe part of your just prove it kind of attitude is really because you don't want to surrender your life to God. But I think it's even scarier if you're a religious person. This isn't even more... Okay, so skeptics, yeah, you got a problem. Religious folks, we got a huge problem because it's showing our capacity when our hearts are not set on doing the will of God and not loving the glory of God, to twist God and his word around so that we miss the whole point of it 
but we have our little piece that we've carved out for ourselves to make ourselves feel like we're really religious. Come on, we keep the Sabbath. Oh, yeah, well, I keep the Sabbath. You know, but God's doing things. doesn't matter. I keep the Sabbath. That's what I'm proud of. It's about me. It's about my glory. Do you see the whole thing? Oh, so discouraging. It just makes me think, like, what am I have to be doing this in my life. I know that my heart doesn't totally love the glory of God the way it should, so I'm guessing there's some areas in my life where I'm doing this, and I start looking around like, where am I doing this? Oh, no. Who's worthy to, to be a follower of Christ? It's just, it's a really discouraging text. In fact, the only thing I can really find encouraging in this text, the only thing here that gives me a little hope that's a little light in this text that's otherwise a very heavy text You know what gives me hope? That Jesus can heal the whole man. Jesus can heal the whole man. (sighs) Thank God Jesus can heal the whole Jeremy. Not just my body or a part of my body. He can heal my soul. He can heal my spiritual orientation away from him. He can, he can give me a new heart. I can be born again. God can circumcise my heart, to use biblical language. He can give me a new mind. God can change our hearts. How do you change your heart? God can change my heart. God can make me new. God can give me a heart that wants to do his will and that wants to love his glory. And even as, as a Christian, God can keep strengthening that within me. And so God can give you that heart. What, what, what if the reason you, you don't believe is not because you're a scientist or because you're a rationalist? What if it's just because you need a new heart? And God can do it. And as a Christian, isn't it encouraging to know that God continues to renew our minds as we surrender to him? He continues to strengthen our, our, the, the grace within us so that we might more and more rightly think about him. Let me just close with, here. this is a closing verse. Turn to, some of you may know this, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It's on page 1123, 1123. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, page 1123. Some of you have memorized this verse. It's kind of one of those Christian top ten favorites. There's a reason. It's just so good. Such a great summary of the Christian life. He says in verse 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in light of the fact that God has saved you, in light of the fact that Jesus died to not only forgive your sins but change your heart, in light of the fact that Jesus can heal the whole man and he's made you a new creation, in light of everything God's done for you, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. In other words, complete surrender of the will to the Lord. Lord, it's your life, my whole life, my body, everything is yours. As the old uh, quip goes, as everyone who preaches on this passage always quips, uh, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. And so we have to keep coming back, keep offering, keep offering. Lord, I surrender myself again to you today. And then verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, the schema of this world, the the grid of of self-will and self-glory, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 